Welcome to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. In this program, you'll hear fascinating stories from science, technology, finance, and the arts. Learn how dynamic individuals created their paths to success and the wealth intersections that occurred. It's where you might just find the answers on how you can pursue your passion while creating the necessary foundation to build personal wealth. And now, here is Megan Gorman. Hello and welcome to The Wealth Intersection. I'm Megan Gorman and I'm thrilled to have you be joining us today. On today's show, we're going to have two entrepreneurs who are changing how we approach different aspects of our life. First up is Sandy Gibson. Sandy is the CEO and co-founder of Better Place Forests. Sandy and his co-founders are changing the way that we handle end-of-life experiences. His vision to create the first memorial forest of its kind to allow individuals and families to scatter the ashes of their loved ones in a unique place. Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell me, tell us about Better Place Forest. I think this is one of the most interesting ideas out there. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, So a Better Place Forest is like a cemetery, but instead of a grave and a tombstone, your family's final resting place is beneath a tree. And by choosing that tree, you're helping to buy and protect that forest forever. How it works is that 80% of baby boomers are choosing cremation, but they haven't lost a need for a sense of place Mm -hmm. and a need for their family to have a ritual at the end of their life as a transitioning moment as people move on from living with someone to living with their memory. So a better place forest, we buy privately owned land. Mm -hmm. We endow it and protect it forever. Uh, We partner with local conservation groups Mm -hmm. to ensure the land is permanently protected. And then families can come back for a spreading ceremony where we prepare the ashes for that ceremony by mixing them with local soil to make sure they break down naturally into the soil and those nutrients become part of the earth that nourish the tree. And why we entered the market, why we started Better Place Forest was uh, when I was five years old on Christmas Eve, my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. I'm sorry. And she dedicated the last six years of her life to creating a nonprofit called Wellspring in Canada where cancer survivors would provide counseling and support to cancer patients. And it was this incredibly beautiful legacy Mm -hmm. that she's created. There's a beautiful picture of my mom in all 13 centers across Canada. But when I think about my mom, that's the image I want to see. But I find I can never forget three images. You know, you'll always remember when someone dies. You'll always remember their memorial service. And you'll always remember the image of their final resting place. Mm. And when I was 10 years old, my father had a stroke and died. And we went to the local cemetery and we bought a plot and we built a big tombstone. And then 13 months later, when my mother died, um, you know, we buried her there Mm. along with my father. And it was beautiful to know they were together forever and they had this final place. But going there, you know, it's a big black tombstone that reflects the cars driving behind you. because It's about 15 feet from the street. And it's just not the memory that I think my mother would want me to have of her. Right. And it's certainly not the memory that I want of her. I mean, so it's it's pretty amazing, though, you went from just going through that experience to deciding to start a company to, to in many ways, disrupt how we handle end-of-life experiences. So how did you get there? Well, I started my first company uh, while I was in college and uh, ran that for a few years after that. What company was that? Uh, that, was a, that was a social network around college admissions that failed pretty spectacularly. <laughs> In 2007. Uh, and then with my same co-founder, uh, my best friend, my COO now, Brad Milne, uh, we started another company and we ended up in kind of enterprise marketing automation. We would automate all of the 
uh, content that companies have put into newsletters. So you can have lots of different newsletters that are much more targeted and tailored to engage your employees for employee social media engagement or your customers Mm -hmm. or your partners. Uh, But it just, you know, we ran that for seven years. We made it, built it into a kind of a profitable little business, but it wasn't ever going to hit scale. It was too small a market. Mm -hmm. And we realized that our hearts weren't really in it. We wanted to work on something that was a lot more meaningful. Mm -hmm. And when we were looking at kind of what to do next, we talked a lot about kind of what are the things that mattered most. And, uh, you know, I think a lot about them related to uh, my mom, kind of lessons that I learned from her watching her at the end of her life. You know, she gets a terminal diagnosis and she she ends up spending the rest of her life, you know, thinking about this and creating something to live on afterwards. And the three kind of lessons that I took away from that and the time that I got to spend with her, particularly in the last year, was first, you want to work on something that matters, something where you can make a difference in the world. Um, You know, I I like to talk about it here, like your dent in the universe. Mm -hmm. And for her, it was creating Wellspring. It was this thing that lives on after hers and you know, has helped over 100,000 families and has this huge impact in the world. And so we wanted to solve a problem that actually mattered. Um, and, you know, enterprise software wasn't super inspiring to me. Uh, so we wanted to do something that, you know, had an impact. And something I heard once was that all the great companies either make the world more efficient, make the world more fun, or make the world more beautiful. Mm-hmm. Because those are the things that inspire people, whether they're employees or your customers. They're the inspirational things that people really want to work on. And I'm not an engineer. Efficiency is not something I'm, you know, you know, makes me want to get up in the morning. Um, but making the world more beautiful and creating a physical product was very something that I think we really wanted to work on. Uh, the second thing that's really important is, uh, you know, starting a company, you think it's going to be like building your own jet ski. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's a lot more of like surfing. You're picking a wave to ride. And then your job is to build your surfboard, get on the wave and not fall off. But if you never get to ride a big wave, you never really discover how good you are. Uh, So you have to pick a market that's really big, that's going through a huge wave of change. Otherwise, there's not a lot of opportunity. Um, So that kind of learning from our last company was that, you know, the market is what's changing and you're the one who's riding the wave. You're not driving the change. I think people talk a lot about disruption a lot. They're like, oh, this company disrupted this space. And really, I think it's more the technology disrupted the space. Mm -hmm. The company is the face of that technology. But ultimately, it was technology. And sometimes when there's patents involved, there's only one company with that technology. In the case of our market, it's cremation. Right. Um, and the reason it's important to choose a market like that is, you know, when my mother was, um, you know, dying in her last year, she spent a lot of time talking about how proud she was of being a lawyer. And she was an estate lawyer. So she mostly did wills and trusts for mostly very wealthy families. And she was, it was so important to her how good of a lawyer she was and that she'd written two books and that she was, you know, a partner, one of the youngest women to become a partner at a major law firm in Canada. You know, and that was really important to her because it was her knowledge of greatness, that she could dedicate her life to something and be great at it. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people say that at the end of your life, no one, no one regrets all the hours, right? I think, you know, sometimes you hear people say this where it's like, no one wishes they worked more mm-hmm. when they're dying. And I got to spend the last year of my mom's life with her, and that wasn't true. She was extremely proud of the work that she did. And so I think it's really important to get to not just work on a problem that you think could change the world, but it's also you've got to work on a problem where you can discover what it feels like to be really great at your job. Mm. And if you don't pick a big market, you're never going to really learn that as an entrepreneur because you're not going to get to ride a great wave. You don't want to, at the end of your life, be like, man, I, I could have ridden a great wave <laughs> if I just found one. Right. Right. Like you've got to try. And the third thing, though, is, you know, my mom died when she was 46. Um, 
she was diagnosed with cancer when she was 39. So you do have to be aware of the fact that life's potentially pretty short and unexpected. Yes. Um, you don't know when. So you don't want to compromise on who you do it with. Uh, so one of the things that was very important about starting a business and why I've always been an entrepreneur was I wanted to choose who I work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons why I didn't want to work in B2B anymore was that you know you have to build a network, you have to spend your time selling to your customers, you have to build relationships with them, and maybe they're not the people you want to spend time with. Um, at Better Place Forests, it's a consumer product, so we get to work very closely with families. We get to see the impact we have on them, and I really enjoy that. I love it when people, we get a lot of handwritten thank you notes, mm. um, and I just love seeing in people's faces how much of an impact it has on them when they put someone they love to rest in this beautiful, beautiful place. And they know how much better it is than what their other options were, the cemetery where maybe they buried their parents. Uh, but also, you get to work with people who are really passionate mm-hmm. and who are interesting and who are smart. And you know that's really, really satisfying because I don't want to come into work and look back 20 years later and be like, man, I wish I'd spent time with better people. You want to work with the best people because it's your life. And you know, I spent by far the majority of my time at the office. So it's, it's very important to do those three things. And those are the three things that I learned from my mom. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because we're starting to see more of a focus on, on, you know, legacy and environment in estate planning. And one of the ones that got a lot of publicity this year was Luke Perry when he passed away. They buried him in a biodegradable mushroom suit, mm-hmm. which is a, really a unique way to go. So explain to me, how are people finding you? I mean, is it are you being introduced by estate attorneys? Is it people who are just Googling, sort of looking for something different? How, how does it work? Yeah, in our case, it's a bit of word of mouth, mm-hmm. um, and it's a lot of advertising. A little bit of press, a little bit of word of mouth. Um, occasionally, funeral homes recommend us. Okay. Um, but most of our customers are pre-planning. Okay. They're choosing for themselves and their families, and they're, they're buying you know, years in advance. Uh, so in general, it's they'll come across an ad, and they'll see Better Place Forests, and they'll think, huh, that seems kind of like a nice idea. Yeah. And then, you know, it takes time. They'll talk to our uh, advisor team uh, typically takes them a while to talk to their family to communicate. Uh, we make all the as much information as possible available to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people don't know how expensive cemeteries are, for yeah. example. Uh, they don't think through uh, what doing your own spreading ceremonies like. You know, I'll give you a, a very crass example: is um, people always will come in and they'll say, "Well, you can just do this for free. You can go into any forest and just do this." And the challenge there is two parts: one, if it's a public place. You know, that might be someone else's place. I remember uh, talking to someone who'd gotten married in a park, and when they came back a few years later, they found, you know, a little makeshift memorial for someone whose ashes have been spread in the exact same place they've been married. You know, that's a very private use for something that is in a public space. So that's not always great. Um, The other one, though, is just spreading ashes isn't always a beautiful experience. Like, how do you get all the ashes out of the plastic bag? Right. What do you do with the bag? You know, if you don't rinse it carefully and make sure all the ashes are back in nature somewhere, then you have to throw away a plastic bag with some of the ashes of someone you love in the garbage. Right. right? Big That's, Lebowski actually gives yeah, a more right? humorous example of it, but it is a challenge. I, I know when we uh, let my grandmother's ashes out, it's hard to do it physically to get it all out there. It, exactly. and it's But it's something that people don't want to think about. Mm-hmm. And it's something that right now we're at a period of time in history where, you know, the cremation rate's 53% across the country. Mm-hmm. It's much higher in urban areas. Uh, and the industry hasn't really changed very quickly. So people are making a decision that traditionally they used work with funeral homes or the clergy mm-hmm. to tell them what do you do. You know, when someone you loved passed away, one of those two groups of people would come in and handle the process for you and guide you through it. Now people are looking much more at self-directed funerals and memorial services. 
and they're coming coming at this with with not really a lot of knowledge and so it's very tough because rituals usually take hundreds or thousands of years to develop and now people are kind of being asked to create their own right. and that can be very difficult for family members who are trying to create a transition and a beautiful memory because ultimately as i said before like you just never forget those three moments mm. and you don't want to have that image of a final resting place as an image that's not what you want for the person that you love. So how does your team help people come up with ritual? Because I think you bring up a great point. Funerals are hundreds, if not thousands of years of ritual planning. How do you get them to start to think about it in ritual? And then how do you layer in generational planning with that? Great. So it's really interesting. Most funeral services have very similar structures, Mm -hmm. regardless of the religion. And the key is to take that larger structure and then give people the choice to customize, whether they want poems, whether they want prayers, whether they want readings. Uh, There's different structures that you want. So people come in and we give them an option for readings. They meet with one of our stewards on the phone and talk about what the different options could be and how to design it. Uh, And then we tie those into that larger ceremony service where you see the ashes return to the ground, where after they're recovered, you then want to... um, spread wildflower seeds or plant new flowers in that space because families want to participate Mm -hmm. and see that growth. And it's really kind of a beautiful moment. Um, But it's really all about creating a bit of a narrative Mm -hmm. because ultimately it's the ending of a life journey. Mm -hmm. And what you're trying to create is that final image where you see the end of the life journey be beautiful. Mm -hmm. And you see the comfort of seeing that their ashes are now part of the soil. And that when you walk away and leave the forest, you have a beautiful memory of a beautiful place. That when you think of that person, that's what you think of. Uh, what's interesting, though, is so many of our customers are, are what's called pre-need. They're buying for themselves in advance. And you get a very unexpected image mm-hmm. uh, that's really beautiful. I chose my tree during a ceremony when I, we left the family to have some time. And I remember seeing this one tree, and it was surrounded by rhododendrons. My mom's favorite flower are rhododendrons. And it was a part of the forest that we'd actually walked up when we'd been there on January 30th, 2016. And... Uh, what was interesting about that was uh, sorry January 30th 2017 and uh, was you know my mother died on January 30th uh, 1995 so it was this beautiful perfect day in the middle of two weeks of rain and I didn't realize it until afterwards but I'd walked right by that tree and been like wow that's a big tree that's really nice and uh, but what's so interesting the reason I tell the story is that when you've chosen your final resting place and you've seen it right. when you think about death and given the nature of our business I think about it every day uh, I see the image of that tree Because that's my forever. You know, and the industry spends a lot of time talking about, oh, how do you make a beautiful death? I don't think you can make a beautiful death. I think death is um, occasionally peaceful, but generally it's not. Mm. Generally it's pretty painful uh, to watch and it's pretty hard on everybody. But what you can do is you you can have a beautiful forever. And whether you choose to be spread in the San Francisco Bay or you choose to be buried in a cemetery that you like or you choose a place like a better place forest, that is your forever. And if you can have that image and know what that looks like, that's very comforting. And it's very comforting for the people who live on to know that's what you wanted. Now, are you seeing families do this from a multi-generational standpoint? It's particularly since Generation Z, right? The, the kids in their young 20s and their teens, they're really into the environment. I mean, when you look at them as investors, they're into socially conscious investing. This idea I could see appealing to them, but I'm, I'm assuming it's their parents and grandparents going down that path. Yeah. Well, right now you're going to see a little bit more of uh, probably the baby boomers talking to their children who are millennials. Mm. Our customers are typically in their 60s, sometimes in their 50s, sometimes in their 70s. Um, And 
when they're talking to family, it's almost always like, oh yeah, that's a beautiful idea. That's a lot better than, and then they list an alternative. An alternative. Um, what's beautiful about the idea is that you can create a family place. You can have a family plot. You know, my mom, uh, we could afford six burial plots when she died. And it was really important to her because she wanted to know that there were four extra places for me and my brother. I asked her, I was 10. I was like, mom, why do we have six? And she's like, um, well, so you can be buried here with me and then, and then your wives can be buried with you. Oh. Well, no, that's really nice. What about our kids? That was not the right question to ask my mother. <laughs> uh, that, was a really, that was a really hard moment for her. Yeah. Um, and I forgive myself because I was 10. Yeah. But it's the, the thing about it is it's getting that intergenerational plot as an option today is yeah. so expensive that no one even thinks about it. But I think it's a really beautiful idea. I think it's very important to know that you're part of something greater than yourself and know that you're part of a generation. I've got, you know, I grew up with my mom telling me stories of my family and when they came over to Canada and then, you know, the generations that built up and created opportunity for their family after them. To know that you're part of that longer story Mm -hmm. is incredibly important. And I think to have a physical space forever that's your family's place on this earth, I think that's just one of the most beautiful ideas. Uh, So that's something that we do offer your family tree can always have additional spreading ceremonies in the future and we have some families come in and and create private family groves so it really is a family space and i think that's um you know i certainly know it's what my mom wanted it's certainly what i want for my family that's wonderful so give me some of the insight into the economics of this right because i think the average funeral today is around ten eleven thousand dollars but that's the average and you and i are sitting here in california where nothing is ever the average price that it is in the rest of the country so give me some understanding of is this a cost effective approach or or is it more challenging it is it is much more affordable uh the vast majority of our customers are very middle class um and the reason for that is that if you're looking at a traditional burial, you've got to buy a burial plot. And if you're anywhere near a major city, that's typically going to be very expensive. Mm-hmm. The average cost of a burial in 2015, I think, the um, National Funeral Directors Association, I think they estimated it was almost 9000 But, you know, the thing that's important about that is you've got municipal cemeteries, which are much less expensive typically, mm-hmm. and restricted to people who live in the area. And then you've got, you know, rural cemeteries, which are often much less expensive. Or um, if you're in the South, you'll have burials on a church property, which are often very inexpensive. For your average burial in a cemetery in a suburb, or if, they, if there's still space in a city, they're much, much more expensive. And then you've got to buy the, the cost of the casket, the tombstone, what's called a grave liner, which is a concrete box where you typically put inside the grave. Uh, why they exist is, you know, there's not really a, there's not really a specific reason. They were designed originally... Uh, to make it easier to mow the lawn got it. so they didn't cave in. Uh, but that kind of caught on. So there's all of these costs that go into this. So for us, you know, our average tree starts at $2,900 mm-hmm. for one person. I think our average family is probably paying around seven, dollars $8,000, but that's for two people with two full ceremonies, um, the full marker. So compared to a traditional burial, it's much, much less expensive, and we think it's much more beautiful and better value. But we're not in a suburb. You know, right. we are in these beautiful country areas, yep. so it's appealing to a very specific customer who wants to be in one of these beautiful places. And where, give, give me some idea of where these places are. Great. Well, we've got one very southern tip of Mendocino, right on the coast, beautiful, uh, overlooking the ocean. It's this incredibly beautiful redwood forest, about three hours outside of San Francisco. Uh, we've got our second forest, which is about uh, 45 minutes an hour outside of San Jose in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and it's kind of a classic Santa Cruz Mountain redwood forest. 
Uh, so it doesn't have that view of the ocean, but it's got this, you know, the peaks, and it's it just feels very Santa Cruz. Uh, we're then opening next year. We're going to f- fully open up. Uh, in We're open for Washington, Arizona, uh, and then uh, we have a couple more states that we're really excited to announce as well in Southern California. That's wonderful. I mean, I think that one of the things that comes to mind when I think of this idea, right, is the real challenge in what your business is doing is you're dealing with land trusts, right, and, and, and easements. Is that is that the best way to look at it from a property law perspective? Yeah, well, the biggest thing you're thinking about is zoning. Mm. Is getting property zoned in California is one of the more challenging <laughs> things in the world. Yeah, you chose this state <laughs> first. <laughs> is it because we're more open to these ideas? Uh, well, it's actually because Ontario made it impossible for us to open there. <laughs> Uh, okay. Yeah. They, they were like, if you, if you take money, you're a full cemetery. And we're like, okay, well, that's fine. We can be a cemetery in Ontario. But uh, how are you going to, how are you going to, you know, figure out how it's structured, given that no one's ever done this before? They're like, oh, well, if no one's ever done this before, then we don't know if you'll be successful. I'm like, well, yeah. They're like, ooh, we can't give you a permit if we don't know you're going to be successful. And I'm like, so... <laughs> It's a catch-22. So you came over to the United States. So, yeah, came over to the land of freedom. And um, the, uh, so we chose California because it was just, it was beautiful. Uh, and we also needed to find investors who had the same vision and mission as us. You know, it's, it's an industry that can attract a lot of cynicism. Yes. Um, and that's not what we want. We wanted to build something great. And we wanted to build something really beautiful. Um, and we didn't want to cut corners. So... Coming to California, coming to a place where you have people who kind of have, have dreams of of things like this, of changing the world, it was kind of the perfect place to do it. And, you know, Redwoods are, are a nice touch. They are. They are. They're good marketing. <laughs> so I completely understand. Do you think um, this is an easier option, though, on the West Coast with the way versus the East Coast, just because of how the country was settled and the laws in some of these places? Uh, you know, it, it totally depends. Uh, it's state by state. Some states have extremely complex zoning laws. Mm. Some are very straightforward. California is probably the most challenging. Okay. Um, it's just there's layers upon layers of approvals that you need that you've got to get all lined up. And uh, but I think we'll see. You know, early early signs. This is something that could appeal across the country. Uh, I think it's going to be different everywhere, though. I think the forests that we choose and the way we design them will change by each place. Um, California as a market is. Very connected to nature, conservation, preservation. Um, I think in other parts of the country, we're going to see a lot more of the desire to create a family place. And what what makes it challenging is if your family's been in the same place for multiple generations. If they have, then I think you want a family place forever. If you're a family where you've got, you know, the parents live in San Francisco and the kids live in, one lives in L.A. and one lives in, you know, New York, you know, that's less of a connected to a single place. I think that could be a challenge. So once you get this idea and you decide you're going to, to launch Better Better Place Forests, how hard was it to get funding? Because I think it's a brilliant idea, but I'm in the estate planning world. So I, I sort of live with death on a daily basis like you do. But how hard was it to find funding? Um, I was at a conference once and someone fully doubled over laughing. It was pretty funny. She was... Uh, a very good sales leader, and I looked at him and said, oh, "Well, you know, we're running a sales funnel, and it looks like this." And I'm looking for advice. She's like, "What do you do?" I'm like, "Well, we're a sustainable <laughs> cemetery alternative." And she just looked at me, laughed, and kind of walked away. Um, <laughs> it, it was what I would say about a better place forest was it was the first idea, and you know, we worked on a lot of different ideas. 
um, me and my co-founders, Jamie came from, um, you know, infrastructure development and investment banking. And Brad and I have been starting companies since we were in college. Our, our first one was uh, importing uh, beautiful handmade cotton scarves from Africa and trying to sell them to men as an alternative, as, as a wrap to wear around the house that didn't catch on. Um, it didn't work out as well as so that would. work. <laughs> I was like, well, these are so comfortable. The man skirts are great. Idea. And I still have many of them. They're very comfortable. But no one wants to pay me for them. So uh, this idea, what was different from all the other ideas is, you know, I think we ran Elevate, our last company, for seven years, and none of our friends knew what it was. Oh, okay. And we're like, what do you do? And we're like, well, it's B2B marketing, it's this and this. Um, we hear big customers, there's, you know, Groupon and AT&T and people like that, and they're like, uh, yeah, but what does it do? I'm like, okay, this is too complicated. Better Place Forests um, was really interesting. Everyone we talked to as a consumer totally got it. They were like, this is a great idea. Yeah. That's so much more beautiful than, you know, where I buried, you know, my mom or my dad or my grandma or, you know, my physiotherapist at the time. She's like, wow, that's a really good idea. My, it, it my is, dad. It's one of those ideas where you're like, how come no one's done this before? It's, it will explain why. It's really weird. So, um, you know, I was going to my physiotherapist. She's like, oh, that's a really good idea. You know, my, my mom has been driving around with my dad's ashes in the back of her trunk for a year. And I'm like, why? She's like, she doesn't want to bring them home. Aww. She doesn't know what to do with them. And I was like, yeah, well, I totally get that, right? Um, so for us, it was just so intuitive and so obvious. But for investors, oh my God, I, I don't know if there's a business that investors could like less than us. <laughs> really? It's the craziest thing in the world. Uh, we're fortunate to have amazing investors who really believe, but most of investors, when I go in and, and pitch them on Better Place for us, they're like, what are you talking about? Right. No. I had someone say once, this is my favorite one, they're like, I don't want to be in the business of death as I want to be in the business of living forever. Isn't that better place for us? And I was like, what are you talking about? Just, are, we on the sh- are we on Silicon Valley TV show right now? Yeah. Uh, so I'd say that was, uh, it's been an interesting thing. It's one of the only businesses where it makes sense to a lot of consumers and it doesn't really make sense to investors. Yeah. Uh, it will one day when they see it, but... I will tell you, as someone who does estate planning meetings and talks about death with clients, they love the idea. They're like, oh my goodness, why didn't we even think to look for something like this? So I think it's a big, the biggest challenge I see is connecting people yeah. to the idea. It's getting them to realize that it exists and building the relationship and trust. Because again, it is, it's there forever. So you need an incredibly high level of trust. Um, and it's, uh, and just getting that relationship over time you know, traditional cemeteries have often been around for 100 years. You know, they're very physically there. You see them a lot. Whereas Better Place is a concept you have to get comfortable with. And then you have to get your family to talk about it. Right. And when you're dealing with estate planning, you're dealing with people who are ready to talk about end of life. Yeah. Whereas I remember one time, one of our customers, she's like, she was at it. I did her first sales for the first year. And I'm on the phone and she's like, I really want this, but I can't get my son on board. I said, well, what did your son say? And she pauses on the phone. She said, well... He looked at me and he said, but mom, you're never going to die. Oh. And I was like, well, that seems like it's going to be a hard one to convince them of. So it's, it can be challenging because sometimes it's just a topic people don't want to talk about and you've got to draw it out of them. Yeah. You've got to talk. Now, Better Place is, is good at that because it's beautiful and it's positive, but it still is a challenging topic that can be very scary for people to talk about. So, Sandy, in the last moments of, the sh- of this part of the show, share with people how they can find Better Place Forest, how they can connect with you and your team to learn more about this. Great. Well, we'd love to hear from anyone who's interested. Uh, we're both constantly growing, so we're always looking for people to join our team. Uh, and we're looking to expand across the country. So for anyone who's interested in Better Place Forest as their 
choice in there forever, you can find us at www.betterplaceforests.com. That's www.betterplaceforests.com. Sandy, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it, and I love this idea. I think it's amazing. So please, check it out, betterplaceforest.com. Megan, thank you so much. My pleasure. We'll be back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. If you have a question or comment about the program, your money, or what it can do for you, please send an email to Megan at thewealthintersection.com. That's M-E-G-A-N at thewealthintersection.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I'm Megan Gorman. On the second half of today's show, I'm here with another young entrepreneur, Sheree Robinson. Sheree is the founder and CEO of Tastemakers Africa. And travel is such a big part of how people spend their money nowadays. And and Tastemakers is a mobile app for booking adventurous travel all over Africa in places like Ghana, Senegal, and South Africa. And Sheree's travel expertise is pretty well known. She's appeared in publications such as Condé Nast Traveler, Vogue, and Essence Magazine. Sheree, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so Sheree, why don't we start with Tastemakers? So what is Tastemakers? So Tastemakers is actually a peer-to-peer experiences platform. It actually allows you to book unique tours and activities from a vetted community of hosts, which we actually call curators. The idea here is to be able to connect authentically um, in every African city. Wow, that sounds pretty cool. So, so give me an understanding. Like, if you and I were sort of in Ghana right now, and I said, hey, Sheree, you know, I'm, I'm a total foodie, and I love the craft cocktail scene, and I also like to go dancing. Like, how does, how does Tastemakers work with a traveler like me, particularly if I'm, if I'm there on my own? Awesome. So Tastemakers is actually perfect for solo travelers um, because it opens up in many ways a world of friends and connections that are sort of the people you want to meet and maybe hope to stumble upon, but it makes it super easy for you. So if you're a person like you mentioned, you go on the Tastemakers website or maybe go on on your mobile phone, you type in a on your dates of travel, and then you would be able to actually filter by food or music or culture or nightlife. And you'd see the experiences and hosts that you could actually book a short tour with, except the tour doesn't feel like a tour. It feels like you're with your well-connected friend in Accra. So a person like you could start your day with an art tour. You could have the middle of your day be 
Fulani dining with a chef in Accra. And then that night, you could actually do a nightlife and bar crawl with a social media influencer who's also a rapper in Ghana. So all of those things, you'd be able to piece together your own trip with the things you love. And each part of your experience would be with a person who's passionate about the same things you enjoy when you travel. Wow. And would I be able to do this while I'm on the ground in Africa or would it be something that I do before I leave the United States? So one of the awesome things about tastemakers is that almost all of our experiences can be booked as close as up to 24 hours in advance. So if you don't hear about tastemakers until you land in Ghana, there's still a good chance that some of those experiences you can book while you're on the ground. So the idea is that it can be as on demand as possible because you're dealing with individual people, some of whom aren't, you know, a traditional tour guide. They're an artist or a DJ or some other kind of creative entrepreneur that's using the Tastemakers platform to grow their brand um, and to connect with people from all over the world. Well, and I think that brings up an interesting question because we had Tom Hale on the show from Backroads a few weeks ago. And I think how you do a travel business model sort of tells you a lot about what the experience is going to be like. So you, yours is, is sort of different in the sense that you're cultivating travelers and you're cultivating curators. Am I understanding yep. that correctly? Absolutely. And in a way, is that different from how travel business models have worked in the past? Absolutely. I mean, I think the only comparable for us is sort of Airbnb most directly. Um, It's peer-to-peer. So it means we're both building up a community of travelers who believe in the brand and sort of our ability to know what they love. And on the opposite side of that, we're curating sort of a vetted community of people who offer their own experiences. So in travel, you traditionally had one of two business models. You were a tour operator yourself. So you created your own tours, offered them and operated them yourself. Or you were a mass aggregator who sort of acquired tour companies and let them list on your platform with no real curation. So those were the two models before. So you're either like an agent or an aggregator sort of sending people to a third party who you only kind of knew or you were the operator yourself and what tastemakers is doing is actually creating a whole new wave of people in tourism that aren't necessarily beholden to the industry but have a much wider scope of understanding of what makes the tastemakers destinations dynamic it's it's an interesting model what i what i find fascinating about it is it's not the way that the baby boomers travel. And, and to some degree, you know, I think Gen X is probably a little bit into it, but this is, this is sort of how millennials view the world. And I think Absolutely. I'm assuming your typical, you know, client or traveler or an even curator, they're millennials. Is that, is that a fair assessment? So about 60% of the people who make a purchase are millennials, but the other 40% are Gen X and Gen Y. And what's interesting about that is we're, we're, we're at a place where while booking an experience with a person is something that maybe a Gen Y person initially would find uncomfortable, what we're finding is that having a brand um, that they trust mitigates that. So it's like, okay, maybe on my own, I would want something a bit more formal, but because it's tastemakers, because it's a company I can pay on my credit card, and because at the end of the day, 
authenticity and convenience are important to me, I'm willing to make that, that leap. Whereas a millennial just wouldn't have it any other way. So we find that we have to do a bit more education to even the boomers who use our platform. But once we explain to them the impact of what we're doing, driving tourism dollars into the hands of communities um, and doing so in a way that makes tourism more authentic, more unique, more nuanced, um, people really get behind that across generations. I think you hit, hit, hit the, you know, on the right word, which is authenticity. I think for millennials, that's, that's so important in the travel decisions that they make. I think that they want to feel that there's an authentic feel to it. And it sounds like that's what you're bringing to them. Absolutely. It's, it's the core of our offering. The, the idea with tastemakers is that, you know, granted, we're, we're vetting people. So, so we're making sure there's a certain level of quality. But what we believe is that authenticity can happen at a luxury level or a super grassroots level. Um, and for us, curation and quality control is really about does it have authenticity at its core? I think the one challenge, and, and I say this as someone who just went to Africa for the first time in the past year, is Africa's a pretty daunting travel experience, right? Mm -hmm. For someone who's not been there. Mm -hmm. How do you get people over that mental hurdle? Do, or, or is it not as, as hard as it, as it seems? So I think as a business model, we've taken the decision to actually not get people over the hurdle. Um, so, so one of the, when we, when, when we started, we were a group travel business and in that business, we were charged with convincing people to go. So we had to provide an end to end package and help people with their flights and all that kind of stuff. But the industry is changing. Ghana itself was listed as one of the top 10 places to visit in 2019 by CNN you know, Vogue magazine called Accra, one of the most creative cities in the world. And so even just by the numbers, tourism on the continent is the fastest growing in our industry. And so there are enough people that have already made a decision to go, but are asking themselves, what do I do when I get there? And so most of our business is focused on solving that. However, what we find is that people still have a lot of questions. So we have to offer value-added services to our customers that competitors that are not working in this region um, aren't doing. So for example, one of the things we're doing now with no additional charge is that if you book three or more tastemakers experiences, we will give you your visa letter, visa invitation letter to travel to countries where you need visas. Now that's something that seems like wow, why would you need to do that? But for a lot of people, having to get a visa to travel to a country is very new and daunting as a task, to your point. So the idea here is we don't want you sifting through, you know, really poorly constructed embassy information trying to figure out what to do. If you've shown a commitment to our business, we're going to have a commitment to making your experience as smooth as possible. So we do help people massage that journey um, without being in the business of convincing people. At the same time, we've also found that while we are a travel marketplace from a business model perspective, we don't market in the way that other travel companies do. So we use content as a primary driver of customer acquisition. So storytelling on Instagram, on web, on Facebook is how most people discover us. And that has done more to get people over the hump from an inspiration perspective than anything else we could have done. 
Yeah, and you know, it's funny that you bring up the visa thing because I did go to Kenya and it is it is challenging to get this paperwork in order and you really are sort of guessing as a traveler at times. So the ability to add add value in that sense, I can see why travelers would really enjoy it. So yeah. What I find fascinating about your story is when you first meet you or read about you or see your Instagram feed, you would think, oh, wow, she's a creative or, you know, she's been in travel her whole career. But you're a, you were trained to be a biologist of all things. I mean, how, yeah. <laughs> how did and you like get from biology to travel in Africa? It, it actually is what led me here. So, I mean, I think, you know, growing up, um, my grandmother was very much like sort of a Pan-Africanist, even if she would not have used that terminology. She only went to, I think, seventh grade. So By she the way, wouldn't what have Pan-Africanist? Yeah, she, she would not have called herself or even known what Pan-Africanism was. But in many ways, I mean, we had statues from West Africa around our house, even though she'd never gone there. You know, we were wearing what she would call African outfits to church. We'd come to Harlem. We were from Long Island, but we'd come to Harlem on Saturdays and go to the Senegalese market and get clothes to wear to church. My grandmother was very much that person. And so I always knew that somehow I wanted to connect to Africa or visit there. Like it was just embedded in me as, as a younger child. But what was interesting is it never dawned on me that all I had to do was like save my money and buy a ticket. Like that just never occurred to me. And so I knew that science was something I was passionate about. And so I was like, how do I use science to get to Africa? And so I really went into international development work and uh, international public health work. Um, and so my first trip to Africa was something I did through work. I went to Sierra Leone and I was looking at maternal health uh, by working with a humanitarian organization. And so I spent a lot of time across the continent because of work. And at some point I realized that you know, at the end of the day, I was still sort of part of the problem. In order to work for a humanitarian agency, you have to sort of sell the sad story about Africa. But I was a young black woman, oftentimes traveling independently. And I was meeting artists and creatives and just people that were doing stuff that I had never even thought I could do growing up in America. And I was super inspired and impressed. And I wanted to sort of share that story. And that's really what led me to Tastemakers. It was this idea that no one is sharing this story and no one is making it easy or real or tangible for people to connect to this kind of Africa. And I sort of felt like this was going to be the new wave. And I felt that way, you know, eight, nine years ago, fast forward to today. And that's what everyone's talking about. And so I felt like I was onto something and it took me time to sort of build that out. Um, and I first did it with my own sort of personal networks, but eventually it became the business that I run today. And I'm assuming, I mean, one of the things is when you see a business like Tastemakers and you see it and you're like, wow, this is, you know, so well capitalized. It's so, you know, the, the website, and I encourage anyone to go look at the website. It's beautiful. But I mean, how does one, and this is where the wealth intersection part kicks in, which is how does one actually go and start a business that basically is halfway around the world? I mean, is this you kicking in your own money? Like, how did you yeah. actually get launched? It's a combination of things. It's really crazy. I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. Um, I had moved from Mexico City, where I was working for the World Bank, to New York um, because I had a job offer and a boyfriend, like, essentially. So I moved to New York because of that. Um, 
I did not last, you know, six weeks into my job, my boss was like, you don't feel like you want to be here. And I was like, you know what, you're right. And I left um, because I had this idea that like, I just couldn't focus. Right, and right. in many ways, I became sort of unemployable. Little did I know that you couldn't get unemployment by uh, if you'd been living outside of America for as long as I had. And so I had to discover that my retirement plan was something I could actually cash out of with very little penalty. So I ended up actually taking a job at a startup because I was like, I don't even know what starting a business is like. And the startup I took a job that had just become venture backed. So I became really close with the CEO of that startup and at least learned a little bit about like what raising capital would look like. So I had these like very like not concrete at all kind of idea, um, but I knew I needed to learn. And so took that job at the same time, closed out my retirement so that I could sort of take my time to think about this idea um, and then won some startup competitions. And so that like initial 50K that I started my business with was a combination of, you know, closing out my retirement because I was unemployed and couldn't get unemployment um, and having just enough of design talent because I had a side hustle and graphic design when I lived in Atlanta um, to be able to like sketch out a prototype of something. And, and it really was a commitment to being uncomfortable. I think, you know, 50K when you're used to a six figure salary and you're a mom is nothing. You know, I was fortunate that I had a partner that kept working. And so he floated my living expenses for a while, but, but that also meant like the end of that relationship. So I think as an entrepreneur, um, particularly not coming from wealth, you know, I really had to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, putting in my own sort of sweat equity, doing everything myself. The first version of the site I built myself. I'm not a designer or a, a, a web, like a website builder or any of that. Like I just was online on YouTube, learning stuff and really having no fear and talking about my idea to anyone who would listen. Those kind of were the ingredients to getting it off the ground. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I've, you and I have spent time together before you know, this show, and I will tell you, your ambition and drive is very, is, is just part of your personality. But I think what is so striking about your story is you've taken on a lot of risk, but you, you did it also as a mom. And I think that a lot of women, I think when they look at entrepreneurship, a lot of women don't see it as something they can do and be a mother at the same time, especially with a young, young child. But yeah. it, is, it, it is how you approached it. No, absolutely. I mean, I think I came of age as a mom alongside being an entrepreneur. You know, I remember when I first had my son, I was like, oh my gosh, my life is over. You know, I'm a single mom. What am I going to do? And I went through years of just like working through that. Um, starting my business, I really had to realize like, you're going to have to kind of go all the way in with this. And it didn't come without sacrifice, you know, early stages, I was always asking myself, like, you know, not only did you start a company, but you start a company that requires you to spend weeks, if not months in other countries, like, what are we doing here? I mean, I took my son out of school for a year. He spent, you know, almost six months in Ghana, another four months in South Africa. I sent wow. him to live with family. I mean, and every day you're asking yourself, you know, am I missing out on the most important years of my child's life? And what does he think about this? And, and to be honest, you don't get a definitive answer. I still don't know. But I think I sort of 
had to make a decision that I was doing sort of short-term sacrifice, long-term gain. Um, and I really had to adopt that as, as a mantra for myself and for my son. And then I think the other sort of radical decision I made was to include my son explicitly. So whether it was, if I couldn't get a sitter for an investor meeting, I wasn't going to cancel the meeting. I was going to say, I'm bringing my son with me, you know, and I just had to, and that actually helped me fall in love with motherhood in a different way. Like putting my child as a key part of my identity as an entrepreneur um, became a way for me to connect with people in a much deeper way um, and in a much more authentic way, which was also true to our platform. Um, but it also meant like, I mean, I've been in Lagos, Nigeria, walking into meetings, FaceTiming my son and saying, Google this company and tell me what you find and tell me what you think I should do. You know, and so enlisting him in the growth of the business, he still like sits with me to order and design merchandise. So it's also like taking away, like moving it out of the space of I'm taking away from my child's education to like I'm giving him an invaluable education as a part of this process and doing away with traditional standards of child rearing. Um, I had to really do those things in order to not go crazy. No, I mean, I think that's amazing. I did not realize the extent of the risks you took in starting the business in that sense from the retirement funds to, to bring your sons to meeting, to your son to meetings. But I mean, I can totally see how when you were then starting to look for outside money, people might have really connected with the story. Or did you find it harder to, to, to share the story as you were trying to raise money? I think that I was really fortunate to get I got a lot of no's, but the yeses I got were from people who were just whole person people. And what I mean by that is, I mean, we both know Nima. I look at my very first investor, Pule. I just was, by, by being so out loud, it almost like, it almost forced me into a situation where the only people that said yes to me were going to be people who believed in this whole thing. Um, you know, and if you weren't about that, you were probably going to say no from the beginning. And so sort of self-selecting investors in that way carry through even to my venture round. You know what I mean? I mean, I think looking at the fact that in 10 weeks, I did another 1.5 million, you know, which for any entrepreneur, let alone a woman, let alone a woman of color is a feat. I really think I had to step into like, radical self-actualization and expression in order to find sort of the right people around the business at this stage. So I, I think in many ways, even if I didn't explicitly share the story, knowing the stakes for myself um, and for my son and constantly thinking about that really helped me focus in the fundraising process. And I think that that is so important because, I mean, by the way, 1.4 million is a lot of money. I mean, that's impressive that you raised that. Um, was it, I mean, I got to ask, was it hard? It was hard. I mean, <laughs> I remember when I first kicked off, because we, we had done 400K from our, our first VC uh, a year ago and thought we would do like 2 million right then. And I just got no after no after no and to the point where I was like, I'm, I'm not doing this. And so I was like, I'm going to take this 400K and I'm going to see what we can do with it. And then I'll come back to this later. Um, so going at it, this go around, you know, we had some progress, not necessarily as much progress as I wanted to have, 
but enough that I felt like, okay, we can do this. And also like we had to do it. If we didn't do it, we weren't going to survive. Um, and that was a real thing. Like it was very much like, if I don't do it by this date, we don't have any money. Um, and so, I mean, I wasn't sleeping. I remember there was this, um, this, uh, it was like, they invest in you, but give you, uh, a year of space. And I really, really wanted their investment. And I went all the way, you know, to the end of, of that process. And I mean, in the meeting, people were like clapping. So I was like, I got this. And I remember they told me, no, for some reason, I just was like, we could have talked about this on the first conversation. And I cried. I mean, I was just like devastated, like ugly cry, devastated. And I mean, I had no's that were from people that made me feel like a complete idiot. I mean, I, I had 60 meetings. I took 60 meetings in a eight to 10 week period to, to get that. And so for the five yeses that I got, that means I had 55 no's, you know? You, know so what? I mean, you got some yeses and that's the big thing, right? Yeah. So I think hard is relative. It was, I mean, fundraising for any entrepreneur is crazy. Fundraising as a mom, I mean, my aunt, you know, I had to move home to Albany because I couldn't afford to live in New York. So I needed to go where rent and childcare were free. So I, as a 35 year old person moved into my high school bedroom, my son had the bedroom next, you know, I had to do that. Like that was the only way I was going to survive in my business. And I would literally wake up at like five in the morning, get on the Amtrak to New York city, do meetings during the day, then go to networking events in the evening get home at maybe one in the morning and do it all, like get my kids like school stuff ready and then do it all again the next morning. I did that for 10 weeks. Sure. That's, I mean, it's impressive, but it's, it, it really lays out, I think for people, the real personal finance behind this, which is, look, you, you are sacrificing the whole time that you're building up a business. Now, yeah. But you did, it's interesting because TechCrunch did an article on you, um, and I was excited to read it because I've, I've been following along on your journey. But you talk about the revenue potential of tastemakers because mm-hmm. it's a yep. pretty big market, the Africa market. And yep. you talk about just capturing 1% of that market in the next five years. Give, give me an understanding of the numbers of what potential this has. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's interesting about tastemakers even now is our expansion. So, so our goal is to be rooted in Africa. But when we started talking to our customers, we realized they also want to use tastemakers in other parts of the world. So we were initially looking at this sort of Africa travel market with like a laser focus. Um, and then we realized like we can also serve African customers globally. We can serve people of African descent. We can serve people curious about culture. Um, and so as we begun to sort of move in that direction, you know, we're looking at a $5 billion market just in the next two to three years but a $20 billion market in the next five to seven years. And this is like actual potential for us to capture, not even the whole market, just a percentage by focusing on the part of an industry that for years, everyone else has ignored. I mean, that's why the former CEO of Expedia invested after his first conversation with me. Because he was just like, nobody's doing this. And nobody is. I mean, it's really, really impressive. So in our last few moments, just what advice would you give to other young entrepreneurs, you know, both men and women on, you know, what risks to take, what, what you would do, what, what have you learned from your journey? I think that the first is really like, if you cannot shake it, that's the idea to go after. 
Um, a lot of people are like, oh, I want to be a tech entrepreneur. I want to have a startup. That was never in my attention. I wanted black people to be stronger in their identity. I wanted them to connect to the continent and I wanted them to see each other. Did I know it was going to end up in a tech startup? No, but I knew that that was an idea I felt called to build. And so I think like do what you're called to do and, and stick with it and, and, and be ready for the, for the bumps and the, and the, and the, and the rocky ride, because it's not going to be smooth. Even raising money. Like now there's a whole new fortress of thinking that I have to do. So raising money is like, is not the like check mark that you're done. It's the thing to continue to enable you to push on your idea. And so I think it's really like knowing that you're like being, having conviction about an idea and, and knowing that that conviction needs to carry you in good times and in bad. I think the second is like being unabashedly true to self and, and knowing that entrepreneurship is, is, a, is a journey of self-discovery. And the more you lean into that, um, the better you will, the better you will do. And then finally, like, even when there's no money there, like be creative in how you build and, and those that those places are where the magic in your business is going to happen. Shrey, I think this is all great advice. Uh, in the last few seconds, where can we find out more about tastemakers? Tell us about the Instagram site and the website. Yep. So definitely go to tastemakersafrica.com uh, to explore the site, to explore experiences, to find stories, and then our Instagram is at Tastemakers Africa with no vowel. So that's the at sign and then T-S-T-M-K-R-S Africa. Sheree, thank you so much for being on the show. And no thank you everybody for listening. It's been great me meeting with both Sandy Gibson and Sheree Robinson. I'm Megan Gorman. And until next time, take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to The Wealth Intersection. Megan Gorman will be back with another program next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then. 